And the idea is to use this kind of process to expand your uh, compassion. I mean, compassion, simply speak, uh, speaking, to me, um, is uh, a keen awareness of the interdependence of all people and things. Hi, my name's Michael, and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus, and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. Hey guys, how's it going? I hope you're doing very well out there. Today's episode is about doing good for others. When we're thinking about the illusion of the discrete and separate self, taking us away from the truth that everything is really interconnected in ways that a lot of us can't even imagine. Doing good for others brings us back to that sense of connectedness and brings us back to that sense of community and ultimately moves us more towards a more beautiful world. So today's guest is an opinion leader and public speaker. His name is Stephen G. Post, PhD. He's a best-selling lead author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live Longer, Happier, Healthier Life uh, by the Simple Act of Giving. He has been quoted in more than 4,000 national and international newspapers and magazines. And he is a really nice guy. I don't know what else to say. He's written a really, really interesting book um, that shares his story of human connectedness and, I guess, synchronicity, which we're going to dive into today. And yeah, he's, he's, he's full of stories and, and interesting anecdotes about the power of doing good for others. So I really... I'm I'm so happy to be able to share this conversation with you guys. It does go for a little bit longer than than usual, but I tend to like to allow things to run their natural course. And if if the conversation's flowing, I don't really like stepping in and stopping it. So um, feel free to kind of take this one out in chunks, listen to it um, in blocks. Uh, but it's definitely worth a listen all the way through. And I know that you're going to get something special out of it. And I guess the message from this whole thing comes down to kind of how can you do more for other people? What what small act of kindness could you put out into the world today? Because everything you do, all your thoughts, all your intentions and all your actions ultimately um, leave an invisible trail behind and, and make ripples out there into the world, even though we might not kind of be fully aware or conscious of that all the time. So if you're enjoying these conversations, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming releases. The aim behind everything I put out is to help you gain a, a deeper sense of clarity and to help you really take some meaningful action. And, and I feel like doing good for others is, is the core of, of uh, some, doing something meaningful. You know, it, it all kind, kind of seems to run back to that, to that river. So let's get into the conversation. That's enough for me. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, I guess, if we're going to get into things, I, I, I wanted to begin by maybe discussing this idea of um, doing good, which is seems to be 
kind of what you're all about, Stephen. You, you do good for others and in one way or another, even, even though we might not be able to measure it directly or we might not be able to observe exactly what's going on, um, we're receiving good to ourselves. So we, um, whether it's on a spiritual level, physical, mental, um, good things happen when you do good to others. Uh, would that be a good way to kind of summarize it? I think that is a good way to summarize it. You can be in a very dysfunctional, violent, even sociopathic niche or environment, and uh, bad things can happen to good people. Uh, and at that point, then uh, one has to have some sense of a higher metaphysical plane. But in general, in any kind of a, of a decent functional environment, whether it's a decent school or a decent family or a decent community or whatever it might be, um, it's good to be good. And, and when we are contributing meaningfully, uh, not in some just totally external routine fashion, but meaningfully uh, to the lives of others, uh, taking time to be attentive, to be kind, to be empathic, to be compassionate, uh, then uh, it does, um, as a byproduct, uh, uh, benefit us at least internally. We may not get uh, reciprocal benefits that can be calculated, but that's not really the point. Uh, the point is that just by managing our lives in that way, even in the tough spots, and refusing to get uh, garbled up by a very destructive world uh, and slowly digested into a lot of destructive emotions. We do better when we, when we stick with kindness and, and love and forgiveness and gratitude, uh, despite uh, the fact that we're not getting any kind of a payback, but it, it, it really does uh, tap into a very positive part of our of our biology and our psychology, and there are all kinds of benefits. So what what kind of things, I mean, I want to unlock a lot of things that you kind of just mentioned there, but what kind of things do you, because I guess, just quickly, I, I really want to get some practical, practical advice from everyone out there, and then hopefully maybe go into some of the studies that back this up and some 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 things maybe off the top of your head and some stories that of some you know anecdotes that of situations you may have gone through and, and experiences in your own life but what kind of things happen on a biological level for instance within us when we when we help others when we help others uh, first of all if we have been ruminating and bitter and hostile and engaged in all these very negative emotions uh, when we help others uh, we get our minds off the self and the problems of the self and people widely report that they're able to deal better and in fact go beyond those kinds of destructive emotional states which are when they are extended and protracted the source of a lot of uh, stress and high levels of uh, cortisol and other damaging hormones and so uh, when we get our minds off the self, uh, we, we tend to be free uh, for other emotions. And in fact, when, when we put our minds and our actions toward benefiting others, um, what, what really goes on there is that a part of the brain gets lit up. Uh, the, it's called the mesolimbic pathway. It's uh, 
part of the brain that's associated with feelings of fulfillment and gratification and joy and it doles out at least one of the big four happiness chemicals. Um, when we do that, it actually shuts down the brain areas that are associated or the brain vectors that are associated with bitterness and hostility and these negative emotions. And so you can't have both those parts of the brain simultaneously turned on. So that's a good thing. You know, you, you just simply by 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 doing good to others, even if you don't get a payback in a in an external sense, you're getting an internal benefit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how a lot of those benefits are they're not really super obvious at the time. Like we don't really know what's going on within us. Um, but it's it, it is fascinating when we take away that that I guess focus on the self for a moment and we can kind of sink into ourselves a little bit deeper. Um, you, you mentioned the meaningful element of this and I find that's been a theme within my own life and uh, the life of a lot of people around me and that is finding uh, finding a meaning to all of this, finding uh, a purpose and, and a way to, I guess, serve others feels like a good, a great meaning, a great meaningful life, a, a meaningful life lived once we can find a way that we can be of service to others um, for some higher higher purpose, I guess. And the, the difficulty I feel comes in, in finding that meaning or, or uncovering what that is or how can we actually help others. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Well, that's a really good comment. You know, uh, here's a little anecdote. We had written a paper about widows and widowers uh, who were going through bereavement and grief because they'd lost their loved one uh, happily married for many years, I might add. That's important, happily. And uh, um, the ones who could self-report that they were uh, helping other people in various ways through volunteering, through just doing good in the neighborhood or through their community of faith, whatever it might be, they were getting through this period of grief and bereavement more quickly and in a more lasting fashion. So this was published in one of the better journals uh, and I got a call from the New York Association of Widows and Widowers. There is such a thing, believe it or not. And they were having an annual conference in Manhattan and they asked me if I would go in there and give a talk. So I went in and I gave this talk and it's a big room full of a few thousand people and then I had time for Q&A, so I asked if anybody had a question. There was a guy in the back of the room. He was frantically waving his hands, and I called on him, and he said, I don't care what you say, buddy. I don't do nothing for nothing. Which is to say that he, he was trapped in this uh, sort of ideology, this rhetoric that above all things, he was not going to be a sucker. And unless he knew exactly what the payback was, unless it was a good deal, he was a purely transactionally minded person, you know, um, the art of the deal, if you will. And uh, if that wasn't there, he was not going to be active. And so, you know, that was sad. Uh, and there are a lot of people like that. They, they just uh, are so caught up in this way of thinking that they don't get freed up to kind of discover a higher purpose. And um, discovering purpose uh, requires um, a, a, I think, uh, a willingness to explore 
to um, uh, to to take chances, to take some risks, uh, not to do just you know what everybody else expects you to be doing, but sometimes uh, you you have to kind of break free, which is sort of what I did when I was a young kid. You know, uh, I mean, I could have wound up on Wall Street or in a law office, but I didn't do that. So if you have an inspiration, if you feel intuitively uh, called um, toward some particular direction, then um, take it seriously or as seriously as you can, because um, it can be very liberating and very powerful. Yeah, it's interesting when we when we talk about uh, just following our feeling and going out you know, into the unknown, it seems like a pretty straightforward concept to think about, but it's actually in reality quite the opposite. It's a very difficult thing to go ahead and do, to take those steps in a direction. Maybe the direction isn't purely logical. Maybe it's something you just feel inside is the right way to go at that moment. And it's, first of all, it's 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 tricky to identify it sometimes because it's not purely logical. And other times it's actually very hard just to move forward and, and see where it leads. Um, do you have any I- ideas on how to better do that? Because I think being open to, you know, experience and exploring um, ways, meaningful ways that you can pursue this life that you have, this this extraordinary experience here that we have, um, is, is a great piece of advice. And, and just that openness and cultivating that within yourself is, is um, you know, something that we should all work towards. But how do we actually? How do we actually figure out? How, like, how do we move forward on intuition? How do we notice it better? How do we? You know, these these are questions that I that I find myself asking myself um, quite often. Yeah, because we don't want to be the people who, at midlife, suddenly have a crisis and we realize that everything we've done has been completely empty and pointless. And now, you know, it's even too late to get remarried. I'm kidding. <laughs> Just, no, I'm being silly. But no, I mean, people who have these midlife crises or in some cases, um, you know, there's a story about a guy named Ivan Illich by by Tolstoy, and he doesn't really change until his dying breath. And it's a little late at that point. So it makes sense early on in life, if you can, you know, to uh, notice the things that are most meaningful to you, the things that bring you the most joy, the most inner peace. Um, the most uh, freedom from from suffering and from uh, all the kinds of uh, feelings of being slowly digested by, if you will, a very immoral universe, <laughs> you know. And so, um, if you can, if you can just be meditational and be a noticer. I, I like the word noticer. It's a word that I didn't coin. Larry Dossie, a physician who writes about one mind and premonition, coined it. But if you can be open to the surprises that come your way and sometimes actually pursue them, even though your family may think it's a little crazy and it may not be remunerative, uh, but you know, just trust the journey because for the most part, what I've discovered in life, you know, is that we all have a lot of little goals. We all have our own goals. And they're the things that our mind makes up, our small mind make up. But go, pursuing goals is not destiny. 
right? Destiny is much bigger than than our little goals. You know, that the, the idea that which the the ancients had. You know, that each of us has this almost magical destiny. That there's already a a highway, a journey that we're on, and we we can find that. We can't make it. We don't just create it out of nothing, but we have to be able to step out on the journey and and so step away from certain things and 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 just discover what comes our way by surprise and respond to it and you know step by step response by response we can be led in the direction of our of our destiny and and you know i i feel like that's how i live my life i didn't make my life uh you know in some sense of just deciding well this is what it's going to be far from it i just followed a journey and and i tried to be thoughtful about my responses to people and events and somehow or another um i think with the grace of whatever higher power there is you know things have worked out okay yeah well they definitely seem like they have and it seems like your 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 message is quite a strong one and i think it it inevitably will have already helped so many people and I'm sure that that journey is going to, uh, you know, continue to unfold in beautiful ways. It's interesting what you've said about kind of just, you know, you're going on this path and you might not necessarily know which direction you're going in and, and the goals that our our minds, this kind of, I guess, smaller mind, if that's the way you want to put it, kind of um, come up with uh, are really different to our ultimate destiny which is something that's you know hard to see and and we need to use that that feeling and um that that kind of awareness and i think bringing it back to you mentioned a meditative practice earlier and how you've been kind of cultivating that from a young age i feel like that's really helped in my life as well just to gather some stillness and and to to sink into myself a little bit deeper which i which i feel helps to um you know it gives me insights that I would that my that the other part of me that mind that you mentioned wouldn't have kind of come up with on on its own. Have you noticed that at all? Oh yeah, I mean the left brain is all about linear rationality and you know laying out plans into the future and operationalizing them, getting from point A to point B and all of that. And when you meditate, you know you get away from that left brain thing, and suddenly your mind is open to well you know as. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the oversoul, the more universal mind that most spiritual people have a sense is there. And and if we take our consciousness through meditation and prayer in that openness and that direction, then we can be guided uh, in very uh, impressive ways. And I I do that not just with regard to life as a whole, but just every day. I, I get up early in the morning. I'm usually up about 4.30 or 5, kind of drive my wife crazy, but that's life. And uh, <laughs> and I spend about an hour, you know, I, I meditate and I, and, I, and I think about, I visualize, uh, I, you know, I think about all the people I'm going to encounter over the course of the day because I'm in a medical school and, and I, I kind of, you know, I have to interact with a lot of people and, and it's not always simple. Some of them are are not well and 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 some of them are just, you know peers and faculty who are struggling with an addicted kid or whatever it might be and so i just kind of go through a dress rehearsal a little bit with my open mind and i imagine these encounters and i ask what kind of expression of kindness or love do 
do I want to approach this person with? So it could be, you know, I, uh, forgiveness. It could be compassion. It could be, I call it in the book, care frontation. You know, sometimes you have to help people get straightened out a little bit. You know, so so I'm always thinking about that early in the morning and it kind of sets up the the day. So when I go through the day, I'm not reacting to the unexpected events around me, um, but I'm actually more in control and I'm responding and I'm in the spiritual driver's seat, I would say. Yeah, it seems like that that would take a, a lot of compassion as well because you're then approaching things in a way of how can you help other people rather than just reacting to the way they're acting towards you. Yeah, that's really true. And 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 so I mean just FYI when I came to this medical school, it's a great medical school. You know, it, it, there was a report about how community had really broken down and and faculty members and clinicians were were on very bad terms with each other and with the institution. And uh you know, I started working in a concerted way to build circles of trust, reflection groups, allow people an opportunity students and faculty and clinicians to begin to kind of debrief the grief and think about what they're they're going through and to become more introspective and so now we're winning all kinds of awards nationally for positive community you know as identified by the people in this community to these various national accrediting agencies and and but that was so 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 here's the thing you know to me okay life is like an it's an i call it an expanding canvas and that's a really important concept to me. Like out on eastern Long Island, about 60 miles east, there was a painter named Jackson Pollock. And he's, he started by throwing this blotch of ugly paint down on the floor. And then he would cover it up with all these streaks of beautiful color and vibrancy. And by the end, it was incredibly beautiful, almost in a mystical way. Uh, and... Um, and and so I think that whatever happens, um, you you have to expand the canvas. So FYI, I mean, when I, I came here from, I'd been in Cleveland for 20 years with with my family, raised our kids there, and then you know there were some difficulties at the university, just financial and other, and and I had this offer to come to New York, so I took the job, but it was a very difficult move, <clears throat> and. Um, the way I was finally coaxed to come here was that the president of the university called me and she said that Governor Spitzer, the governor of New York was Elliot Spitzer, okay? He was going to give me a lot of money to carry out my projects. <clears throat> so I said, that sounds pretty good. So we got, we sold the house, got in the car, we drove east on Route 80, got to Stony Brook, and that first night it was raining like crazy. My son and my wife were really angry because they suddenly realized, oh my God, we really left home. And I went, I couldn't do anything. I'm sorry, Michael. The best thing I could do, I went out in the car to a pizza place, Little Joe's Pizzeria. And I, and I w walked into the foyer and there was this newspaper on the rack and it was the New York Post. And the front cover had Governor Spitzer on it in his socks and underwear. And he'd just been photographed with a, in, in a house of ill repute on taxpayer money nonetheless. And it said, Governor, no more. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to get and that And you just help. sold your house. Yeah, I just sold my house. And I thought, oh, man, this is not any good. 
And then also to make it even more interesting, it was set up, I think this was really uh, synchronicity. It was a negative setup, but it was for good purposes. So I, um, I had started this institute called the Re Institute for Research on Unlimited Love with Sir John Templeton. And we were studying spiritual experiences of love. And this, this gal here in Stony Brook, who was a reporter, had gotten wind of this because it had been in the papers and even, even on the Daily Show. And so she had interviewed the dean of the medical school and my department chair. And they, she said, well, what did you hire this guy for? And they said, well, we didn't hire him to study unlimited love. We just want him to teach our students to be generous and good listeners and empathic and kind. And so the, when I walked into that uh, uh, Joe's Pizzeria, the other paper on the rack in the foyer was the Three Village Herald, which I had never heard of in my life. And the headline was, there's only one article on the front page, Unlimited Love Comes to Stony Brook. And I freaked out. And, and I, so, the, so about three days later, uh, I came to work for the first time and I was going up the escalator in the middle of the med school. And there was this guy standing there with his arms crossed looking down at me and I'd never seen him before. But I had the feeling that he was he was eyeballing me. And so as I got up toward him, he said, are you Dr. Post? He had a very Eastern European accent. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. And he said, are you going to save us? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know about that, but I'm happy to be here. Sounds <laughs> so, like a scene out of a movie. Yeah, so we became pretty good friends. And, 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 but that's the way life is. You have to, and yeah. so things worked out really well here. But from that initial blotch of paint, you know, <laughs> that night when we first got here, to think that it could expand outwards into something quite beautiful, um, that's a bit of a stretch. But that's how life is. You always have to go inward. You have to be meditational. You have to look for the ways in which this sort of universal mind can can bring good out of challenges in ways that we might never ever have anticipated or planned or couldn't even consider. Hope you guys are getting something valuable out of this conversation with Stephen. I wanted to pause for a moment and just, just with, while I have your attention, just to say thank you for participating in these episodes and listening along and engaging with what I'm putting out there. I really do appreciate it. And if you do find some value in the things that I'm putting out, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any upcoming releases and maybe maybe even get in touch with me and let me know what you think about the show if you've been listening to a few episodes and maybe some suggestions, any ideas on how I could improve, um, any things that you, that you feel that I'm, I'm doing well and you really like about the show. And if you just want to say hi, feel free to reach out because I really want to hear from you guys. I really want to connect and, and, and build this community so that I know, you know, which direction to take things to really keep providing you with as much value and, you know, information, things that can really help you gain that sense of clarity and take some meaningful action in your life. So if you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out. Todaydreamer.com is probably the best way to contact me or today.dreamer on Instagram. Feel free to check that out. Uh, let's get back into the show and yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of times uh, we, we go through struggles in life and 
oftentimes these struggles are the one there's the things that kind of build us and we look back and at the time they were the worst things ever you're in the middle of this chaos and you feel like what the hell's going on you don't understand it you don't understand i guess you can't see the the expanded uh canvas on the ground there looking all beautiful all you can see is this mess of paint and you don't know what you're going to do with it and then you know after a little time passes you realize okay looking back this was actually one of the most formative experiences of my life and there's no way that such beauty would be able to to enter my life unless i had gone through that struggle and that happens over and over again over with heaps over of again. different people yeah. and it's 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 fascinating it's also i find this idea of synchronicity very interesting and it's it's really strange because i've been i was looking into it i don't know like probably a couple of months ago um, looking at the work of Carl Jung and just his, I really respect his work and, and some of the, uh, these ideas that he's brought, uh, brought about and, and kind of thrown out there. And um, he talks about synchronicity and it's, it's a very interesting thought because a lot of people go through these experiences where, you know, these meaningful coincidences take place in their lives and then really like not really probable. They're, they're pretty like, um, it's like, unlikely that very very unlikely one in a billion sort of thing that that would happen and this happens continuously more than more than what's kind of what we could kind of account for and i feel like there's there's something maybe going on that we don't completely understand um and it's interesting how connected we might really be when you t when you when you um when you're not looking through something like a materialistic paradigm yeah, exactly. I mean, I love Jung too, and and uh, you know, so he, as you know, you know, he spoke about uncaused causality. That there's this higher form of causality that's mysterious, that involves a, an infinite love and an infinite mind, and it connects us. the The subtitle of of the new book, uh, um, "God and Love on Route 80, is the hidden mystery of human connectedness. Um, I mean, Jung is amazing because he tells that little story in, in his book on synchronicity about having a, a woman patient and they're not making any progress. She's very resistant. But she tells him about a dream she'd had the night before about a really rare silver beetle mm. that just some, somehow you uh, a very uh, almost never see in Northern Europe. So just as she was telling about this silver beetle, uh, Jung hears this little tap, tap, tap on his office window and he kind of spins his chair around and there's this silver beetle and he just kind of puts it over on his on his palm and he gives it to her. And from there they have this incredible relationship. But you could say, okay, if, if you're a statistician, I mean, I, I'm surrounded by people who do statistics and probability theory and they think that luck explains everything in the universe, that even that experience with the silver beetle, you know, in the great scheme of, of you, the universe, at some point, okay, at some point, some woman patient is going to have a, a dream and she's going to come into an office of a psychologist the next day and tell about this beetle and there it is, right? You could say, you know, the chances are, you know, one in, in, in a zillion, zillion, zillion of that ever happening um, but you can still explain it away if you want but the thing is that that becomes almost uh, it becomes so irrational it becomes such a stretch it's a lot better a lot easier a lot more reasonable I think 
to say, you know what, there's something non-local about our minds. Our minds aren't just tissue and cells and brain, but there's something non-local about our consciousness, which Jung certainly believed in, a collective unconsciousness. And, 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 and somehow in participating in this, we can be brought together in ways that are very, um, very surprising, but we need to be open to that because if, if we are, we can discover the ways in which we are cherished by this universal mind, however you want to describe it, ultimate reality, whatever. It gets into a place where it, I, it starts to sound a little bit woo-woo at times, doesn't it? It starts to sound a bit like um, it starts to s a bit out there. But if you think about it, it's like it, I think it's probably more out there to think that this world is working or the universe is working kind of independently of us and it's completely unaware of us and our minds and everything that's going on and everything's completely separate. I think that sounds a little bit more ridiculous for me anyways. Um, but it, but I can see how people could easily feel like, um, because it's so mysterious and because we don't know and, and we kind of like to put explanations on things and like to know how everything works. And sometimes we just need to accept that, that we don't, um, and just kind of go with how we feel again, like what we're talking about with the intuition, with the calling, it, it seems to be linked as well. There seems to be a strong linkage between this idea of meditation as well and taking yourself away from the self and doing good for others, just to bring it back a little bit. I feel like there's definitely some kind of a link there as well. Oh, there is. And, and, and you know, especially in, you know, in the, in the Zen Buddhist tradition that a lot of people practice these days, um, loving kindness meditations, you know, you, you begin, um, you, 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 you breathe deep, you, you bring into consciousness and mind an image of a person you love easily and you you say may you be peaceful may you be free from suffering may you know joy and love uh, may you be healed in mind in the heart and body you know there are variations on the theme and then you might go to somebody more remote and in the end, uh, to somebody who is very challenging and very difficult. And, um, and the idea is to use this kind of process to expand your uh, compassion. I mean, compassion, simply speak, uh, speaking, to me, um, is uh, a keen awareness of the interdependence of all people and things. So that's that's that connectedness that you're talking about. In a way, for me, the way I think about it is looking at everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what relation they are to me, as like a brother or a sister. That's just my own way of explaining it. But it's kind of like we are all connected. We're all this one, but at the same time, we're all individual, but it's happening at the same time. And we need to realize that everyone is really like a brother or sister to us and whatever way they're acting, whether it's coming from a place of, you know, anger or negativity, it's, I think compassion for me is, and it's very difficult for me to be honest. Like I find it very difficult to look at that person as if they were a brother or a sister and, and feel like they're in a way the anger is just an affliction on them and to, and to kind of work with them in a way that helps them to, to move past that. So that, you know, instead of just worrying about how that anger makes me feel or, or going to the level, level real, like taking a step up and realizing that that's coming from a place that, you know, um, 
from a place maybe even of a bit of suffering yes. and that I could I might be able to help some of that. Yeah, so hurt people hurt people. <laughs> you know, and most people who are difficult are difficult because of adverse childhood experiences or all kinds of things. Uh you know, lost impulse control because of abuse. I mean, a hundred different things. So when I uh, I encounter people who are difficult, and um, I and and some of them, uh, you know, you know uh, with, with real psychiatric uh, challenges. Uh, but I I do uh, you know the last part of my morning meditation is 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 when I meditate on uh, a very difficult person who I probably know I'm going to see that day and I go through the same process uh, I envision I, I, I try to focus love upon them upon their image in all of its particularity and uh, and I I say to myself internally may you be peaceful may you be free from suffering and I f can feel in my emotional side the difficulty of that, that it's a little awkward feeling, but it's good because then over the course of the day when I do encounter that person, and I will, I'm probably going to interact in a way that's much more helpful and more constructive than I would have otherwise. So meditation is important. It can be a difficult thing though, I mean, especially if you're continuously doing it and I mean, I feel like for myself, it can wear me down, but I think it's important to realize that it is, it's, it's as difficult as it is, it is a positive thing because it allows you to practice this, this idea of being compassionate, it allows you, gives you that practice, which is, which is ultimately a good thing. Yeah. I mean, our medical students, you know, they, they write really good essays about, about, uh, so-called difficult patients. And most of them feel that the difficult patients who come into their clinical experiences are there for them to learn about being more purposeful and more intentional and more persistent in their kindness, you know? So, and, and they react when some of the clinical role models, maybe some of the senior attendings will uh, label that person in this way or that way. Um, and it's usually not that they're difficult people, but the healthcare system, especially in America, is so difficult. I mean, they're they're panicking because of the insurance system that they don't understand, and they're getting banged around and pushed around and pulled around, and they're frustrated and they're not being communicated with well, so they <laughs> they have a certain right to be difficult. Mm, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the system, but I've heard, I've heard that a couple of times actually. So that it's kind of, yeah, it's, that's interesting. So, um, how do we, besides trying to be as compassionate as possible, how, what, do you have any ideas on some other ways we can cultivate more caring behavior in our own lives? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that compassion is the only expression of love. So I, I have this concept of love in, in the God and Love book that when the happiness and the security of another is as meaningful or real to me as my own, it could be more so, I love that person. So there's no Greek, there's no ancient 
language there is just pretty commonsensical. And you know that when you're at a Starbucks talking uh, with an old friend who's lost a loved one, or you know that when you're looking over a crib at, a, at your newborn or whatever, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you, you have, you have that sense that their security and their happiness is as real to you as your own. And I think a good teacher feels that way. I feel that way about most of my medical students. Not all, but most. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, definitely, but there are other expressions. So I, I talk about a wheel of love. So we don't really talk that much in everyday life, not even in Melbourne, which is a great place, you know about love is that we talk about forgiveness you know so forgiveness is an expression of love for someone who for example has made a big medical mistake and maybe killed a patient and they're trying to forgive themselves you know um, another um, another form of love is mirth uh, you know the, the other day I had a student come in who was really struggling uh, for a whole lot of really good reasons and uh, um, just needed to kind of reframe their perspective on something. So I, I, I asked a couple of, you know, sort of clean, uh, creative jokes like, where does the Easter Bunny go for breakfast? IHOP. Uh, what did the fish say when it swam into the wall? Damn. Just, you know, enough stuff to sort of completely break this person out of their current framework of thinking and then kind of open them up to um, thinking differently. And there's a lot of literature on mirth and laughter and reframing uh, reality. So that's important. And, and, and uh, you know, just helpful behavior, simple actions of kindness that don't really measure up to, you know, full empathy or, or compassion, but just kindness, just everyday kindness um, you know, to interact with people in a way that is 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 affirming and warm in small statements like, "Gee, uh, how's the family?" or uh, "You know, how how are you doing?" Just to just to have a a gentle curiosity about people, and that's what we teach our med students first. Just just show a little gentle curiosity, and then maybe as you learn a patient's narrative, you learn a little bit more about their life and what they've been through and how they're experiencing this illness. Well, then you can be, you know, quote unquote, empathic. And if they're really suffering, you know, then that can move into compassion. But but it can start with something very simple, just like, you know, uh, a gentle curiosity instead of just treating somebody like a over-biologized object. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, having that curiosity and, and opening up and, and allowing you know, allowing yourself to connect with people that you may not usually connect with. Like it could be as simple as giving, you know, a couple of bucks to a homeless person on the street and, and finding a little bit about their story. Like this is another example, but I think that is really powerful. And it, these small acts of kindness, I think, I don't know, I find like things, things happen in a way with, with um, momentum and inertia it really comes into play in life. And I think that happens with kindness as well and opening up to that. Yeah, and everybody, you know, so, so uh, you know, it, the medical students come here from all walks of life and they've got a big four years ahead of them and then residencies. And, and um, I'm, I'm hesitant to say to them, well, the good doctor is 
always compassionate because it's kind of a, it's too much for them to, right at the outset. So I, I but I'm willing to say, you know, since you're here, we can all try to be a little kinder to one another, mm. you know. And everybody knows what kindness means, you know. They say when they say when they, when when your mom says, "Hey, you want to be a little kinder?" We sort of get that, you know. Um, and so I like to begin with kindness and things like the golden rule and 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 just kind of bring it up up from there. Could you talk to me about the golden rule um, when you for a moment? Because I think that's an important thing that I'd like to highlight. Well, you know, the golden rule is ex it's at the baseline of every spiritual tradition. I mean, if you read the Upanishads and the Hindu tradition or whatever it might be, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, uh, the Quran, every, every place you go is this notion of not just do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you, which doesn't take a lot. That just means you go home tonight and if you haven't elbowed some innocent old woman in the in in the back, you can feel pretty good about yourself and and go 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 out and play with the walleye. But you know, I mean, and, you know, but that doesn't take much. You know, it's do no harm, but it, it's more than but that. It's minimalist. So the real the mm. real golden rule is is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, because then you're you and as they would have be done unto, because you're. It's like you're using, taking action. You're taking action. You're, it's not passive. You're using your creative capacities and your ingenuity, and you're you're putting yourself in a certain zone. And when you do that, um, it really has um, an impact on your neurology, on your biology. When you just meditate on 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 the positive version golden of the golden rule. I mean, there was this big study that was done in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado three or four years ago called Shambhala by all these advanced Tibetan meditators. And it was studied biologically with all these biomarkers. And, and they found that when people dwell deeply on the golden rule and imaginatively about the people around them in their lives, and envision themselves acting in, in, in supportive, kind ways, that it affected everything, including uh, telomerase, you know, the, 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 the little... The telomeres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things that measure how, how much you're aging. Yeah, so, so arguably, uh, you know, if you're in the right sort of way of being, uh, it could affect biological aging in some way that we are slightly beginning to understand, although I don't want to overstate this by any means. But I do think that absolutely, you know, so when so so um, Norman Rockwell painted this beautiful portrait of the golden rule. That's that one you you sent me across that one in that in that um, article you you attached. Yeah, yeah. He painted in about 1961. It's got people from every age group, every religion or not religion, every culture, every color, every gender, and and they're all just focused there peacefully uh, on what's written in front of them, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they look so serene and so tranquil. And that's because just by being in that state, and we have neuro studies that develop this, you know, you're again just by thinking in that way, and intending in that way, you turn off all these negative, um, default 
emotions and thought structures that take you into this downward glitch. And so it's a good thing. And, 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 and also, um, once you, um, and this is what Rockwell believed, he actually said this, because I heard him, I had the honor of hearing him speak. He came up to New Hampshire from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he had his, his studio and he gave a talk about the golden rule. So did he have like the, the painting up and then he just kind of spoke about his ideas of create? That's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he had a and he had a, a wooden stick as a pointer, you know, because there were no lasers back then. But he but he asked us, you know, so where's the halo? And uh, a few of us saw it. You know, it was it's this white circle that begins with the rabbi's beard in the middle, and then goes round the toddler's shirt, and then comes up on the other side in the shawl of the woman. And he said, you know, you know, um, uh, I don't not religious. I'm not a religious man. He said. Um, but he, but he did say, I'm, I'm spiritual. And he said, whatever spirituality is worth having begins somewhere in this golden rule. And, and if you just get in that energy of helping others, of thinking and intending and actualizing that helping of others, you know, without overwhelming yourself, uh, but balance matters, you know. He said, it's, it's kind of like surfing. You've got a lot of surfers in Australia, <laughs> you know, and you have to really, really paddle hard to catch the wave and that but once you catch the wave all you have to do is stand up and balance you know it's easier said than done but 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 once you get into that zone of freely contributing to others uh you you have this kind of energy that isn't so much your own it just almost feels like it it invades you from outside in some way you know yeah, yeah, definitely. It's an it's an interesting thought. It's something that I've been, with my own life personally, trying to kind of wrangle with recently. Is like, it's a big question. It's kind of like, what is the what is the meaning of my life? What's the what am I going to do that's going to have a meaningful impact? And it doesn't need to be again the 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 final goal of things. It can just be like a where's my North Star, which direction am I heading in, in something that's for me going to be, you know, a meaningful impact. But just, I think even if the answer is not definitive, it's, it's still a great thing to ask ourselves so that we can find ways to, again, be open and explore how we can, you know, get into that, get into that mode of, um, you know, doing things for others rather than for selfish reasons. And it's, it keeps us in check in a way as well, because I find that when I am doing things for selfish reasons, even I might be blind to it and I realize it doesn't really work out how I'd like or it doesn't, it, it doesn't really feel that, that hole inside me. Um, but, but I think when I'm doing things for others, there's, you realize there's no real hole and everything's just kind of the way you know, it's meant to be or it feels more right anyways. Yeah, yeah and, and we, can, we, can, we can go up and down a bit. I don't think any human being is perfectly steady on these matters. I mean, on a on a given morning, you know, if I'm driving to the university and uh, somebody slows down unnecessarily at a yellow light, I'm as capable of falling full-chested on my horn and <laughs> I don't yell out an Really? I'm capable of that because, because you know, I got a, I've got a, I've got an appointment and this person just could have turned through and I would have gone through it you know yeah. so it's easy to kind of lose your self-control 
and it's easy to kind of lash out a little bit. And New York is an incredibly intense place. Um, I mean, everybody's under pressure. They're under financial pressure. Uh, you drive on the Long Island Expressway, and if you look at somebody the wrong way, they're likely to float you a gesture that would not be very endearing. So, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> just that casual float, just that that little gesture on the side. Yeah, and there, you know, <laughs> absolutely. And there's not that much community. There was more community out in Cleveland, which was a little more Midwestern, and people were... I think you got more community in Melbourne. You know, people take a little time, they connect with each other. But in, in New York, you know, everybody's running so fast from point A to point B, and they're under so much pressure, and the taxes are so high, and they're so frightened of the people around them. I guess it's just about bringing it back, bringing that awareness back in those moments, reminding ourselves and, 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 and that, that um, practice of coming back in a way is what it's all about and letting go like we can all you know lose our shit we can all you know float these gestures around or um have these moments of i don't know how to put it maybe weakness but um it's it's important to come back to that that centeredness yeah the practice of doing that is fine it's like i i think you can take you can make it worse i just want to highlight this that you can make it worse by by maybe um, being too harsh on yourself when you do lose a little bit because we all we all at the end of the day are human and we're all going through this I guess human infliction um, so we need to allow ourselves to be kind with ourselves yeah yeah self self-compassion is really important and and you know um, like with the medical students sometimes later in the day in the clinical setting they'll see a behavior from their senior mentors that is not very impressive like a derisive joke about a patient within earshot of the patient's room you know and then laughing about it and 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 that does sometimes happen and it's because it's late in the day and somebody really wants to get home and they're really tired and beat up and they've been through a lot so you know you have to look at the people around you and and have some understanding of this and also as as we look at ourselves nobody's perfect. I mean, I'm really into the spirituality of imperfection because as soon as you're looking for perfection, relationships are over. Mm. Peace is gone. Have you heard about Wabi Sabi? Uh, yeah, tell me though. There's, there's this idea of um, like perfectly imperfect. It's this whole thing in Japan and it's, and it's like really complex. If you haven't read about it or looked into it, you should definitely check it out. It's... it's um. Wabi sabi, yeah, it's it's I guess the Japanese word with uh, with a thousand meanings. It's got so many different interpretations and meanings, but uh, it comes back to this idea of perfectly imperfect and and the beauty of that. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny when Sir John, who was a very wealthy guy, gave me this money to start the institute, which has a website, unlimitedloveinstitute.org. And he gave you like twelve million dollars for <laughs> yeah, that, right? Yeah, he gave me a lot of money and. <laughs> and he sent me he sent me a f fax from Lyford Key in in the Bahamas, and he said, "Don't spend all your money studying mere human love." Because he he was a little bit skeptical about mere human love. Because I mean, even like even parental love, parental love's pretty powerful. There's nothing like the what a, the love a mother has for a child. Mm. I mean, let's be honest about that. But on the other hand, you know. That same mom will try to bribe the sailing coach at Yale or the 
the uh, the tennis coach at UCLA to get little Barbara in there, you know, and then so. everything blows up. So, so there's a lot of lack of wisdom and 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 there's a lot of a lot of bad parental love in the world, and and people live with that, and they they have the remnants of it within them sometimes, you know. Nobody's a perfect parent, and our love is not always that enduring, you know. I mean, it's here today, but then. It gets uh, it gets a little stale, and we walk away. So we don't stick with people, stick with things, and and it gets very myopic. You know, we're completely riveted on this particular person, but we lose a sense of the whole picture. And and it and it, at times it kind of just flickers a little bit. It's kind of weak, and uh, and it's impure. So that's why you know someone can say you know I love you, I love you, I love you, but the next day they're being abusive. And 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 so Sir John, he he respected human love. You know, he thought we were evolved creatures, and we had these natural capacities for altruism and kindness and generosity. He understood that, but he said, "I want you to spend at least one third of all this money not on mere human love, but on the love that made humans." What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was that look, you know. Um, it's kind of arrogant for us humans to think that we are the be-all and end-all of love, you know. And and he was a tremendous mystic. They called him the Tennessee mystic. And uh, he just really believed in this uh, universal mind, this ultimate reality that um, was underlying the universe and even the thermodynamic principles and gravity and all these. He, was, he, he had, had a lot of physics friends most physicists by the way are theists they, they believe in some organizing higher intelligence and and, and at least a slight majority about two-thirds and so and mathematicians tend to as well so sir john was kind of like that and 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 he just thought that that somehow or another we need to understand what it is like i was sitting here in my right here in this office four or five years ago and this young a uh, medical student came in and she was very distressed. She was, was very uh, 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 upset. And it was clear that she wanted to talk with me. Somehow she'd found my door. And, uh, and, 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 and I said, well, I'd like to talk with you, but I got a really, really busy schedule this afternoon. Can you email me tonight and we'll set something up tomorrow? And then I'm, I felt this incredible energy. It was warm. It was energetic. And I, I couldn't, I look, actually turned around to my right and there was nothing to be seen there. I mean, there was nothing visible to the eye, but I just felt this incredibly strong uh, energy of love. And, and it sent a message to me that, you know what, I have to spend time with this young person right now. So I, you know, went to my email here and I canceled my appointments and I just gave her my undivided attention for three or four hours. And, you know, she took a year off from school, but she got back together. I was her mentor. And I'm actually performing their marriage ceremony in Newport in August. You know, she got married. Really? Yeah. And it's all, and, and, and if it hadn't been for that incredibly powerful moment that I, I felt, you know, if I could use a metaphor, I mean, I know it's maybe not perfect, but. I literally felt invaded by this energy of love and I didn't understand it. I couldn't, but it wasn't coming from me. I didn't feel like it was my love. I felt that it was 
somehow this higher love working through me as its channel. Mm. I guess you'd need to be in the first place open to that kind of a feeling because I I think regularly, like I don't think that kind of thing you wouldn't you wouldn't have acted on that unless you were open enough to feel it or see it or or witness it, I guess, um, or experience it. Uh, because it, that gave you a message and, and I feel like you were open to that, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. And now, now that this person you're really connected with and now you're even holding her marriage ceremony and it's like a kind of, seems like a big part of your life and, and you've obviously played an integral role in hers. So it was that's fascinating. It was a calling. That was a literal calling. Mm. I mean, you're talking about mm. meeting and calling. So I, so one of the reasons I was open to it, so there's a really great uh, British poet who hung out a lot at Oxford. He was kind of in the hippie era, very popular, W.H. Auden. I haven't heard of him. He's really cool, but he did, this is just like a couple of lines. So it's, mm. it's one June night, he's sitting on the lawn after dinner. It's 1933. He's with two women, one man, his colleagues, we liked each other well enough, but we weren't intimate friends. We had no sexual interest. No one had been drinking alcohol. We were talking casually when quite suddenly and unexpectedly, now I'm quoting, something happened. I felt myself invaded by a power which, though I consented to it, was irresistible and certainly not mine. For the first time in my life, I knew exactly, because thanks to the power I was doing it, what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. I was also certain, though the conversation continued to be perfectly ordinary, that my three colleagues were having the same experience, and in one case, I was able to confirm this. My personal feelings toward them were unchanged. They were still colleagues, not intimate friends, but I felt their existence as themselves to be of infinite value, and I rejoiced in it. And that's what happened to me that day, right here. Uh, you know, when 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 that gal Jennifer graduated from her residency, um, you know, I sat at the table with her um, family and her fiance, and and you know, uh, I was only there because I had felt some form of love, which I can't explain, but a form of love that was a lot more pure and a lot better and a lot wiser than my own love because I would have just gone through the afternoon running around from point A to point B to point C. Yeah, it's, it's, you seem to be a person, to be honest, that um, has, is open to forming these connections in life. I mean, that's kind of the way we've met now. And this is like an example of this in your life. And um, you, you have many examples throughout your story where you... Um, you know, you've connected with people and you seem, like I said to you earlier, you seem to have this wonderful memory where you remember all everyone's names and, and all these kind of um, stories and situations with great detail, which makes it even more fascinating to kind of listen to and, and really it, it immerses you in that world and that, that part of your journey. So you've, you've, you studied with Joseph Campbell and yep. Peter Sieg and I don't even know how to pronounce this other guy's name, the guy that um, uh, created Flow. Oh, 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 that, that's a terribly hard name. Took me yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. Mikhail Chick sent me high. <laughs> yeah. So this guy's the one that um, discovered Flow, which is just like, like this, this thing that kind of at the moment, everyone 
everyone is talking about in the world of kind of personal development. Zen and the art of uh, motorcycle maintenance and, and the hero's journey. Yeah, so it's just these, these people are kind of groundbreaking. And you did this at, at this Divinity School. Um, I want to go into a little bit more detail about your book and I want to let everyone know about it. But first, I just want to find out a little bit more about this Divinity School. Like what was going on there? Well, so I, I uh, um, had uh, started a PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania in immunology, but I was also always, you know, pursuing spiritual quests and reading and practicing. And I decided that I would leave the sciences and I went off to the University of Chicago because that was world famous for the study of comparative and world religions. So they had, you know, I mean, Campbell was there and uh, Mircea Eliade, who, who had written this famous book on shamanism was there. <clears throat> and these incredible people, Chick sent me high and flow is for him a mystical state where you're <clears throat> so, so wrapped up in a creative moment that you lose all sense of time and place and even material reality. And it's a very kind of deeply spiritual thing for him. So I was really blessed to be around these folks and um, studied with them. And, and you know, I, I was actually on the faculty at Chicago for a year and 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 I grew so much. I I um, I just was truly fortunate to be around them all. And it was a special time. It was a really special time. It sounds incredible. And it sounds like, like I really believe that if you surround yourself with good people, then, then it kind of, it, there's some kind of a momentum effect and there's some kind of a sharing of minds that is really powerful. You see it in different areas of, um, of like different subcultures. I've noticed that like within poker, people get into houses together, they live together, they study poker together and they all become these brilliant players like best like 10 of like 10 of the best people of the world could you know come from that house it happens with um you know it happens with all different subcultures whether it's you know videography or even personal development when a group of people or minds get together they can they just that what happens is magical there's nothing short of of magical um and you said what you said steve jobs was sleeping on your floor like oh, well, at so, one point well so what happened there well that's well that's so that's these are all examples of synchronicity so when i was uh, 17 i i was at uh reed college in portland oregon which is a pretty well-known liberal arts college in the u.s and uh jobs uh went there he stayed for about a year and a half and then he dropped out and he went to a Zen monastery in India and I, you know, and then he came back. No, I mean, but he was at Reed for about a year and a half. And um, he, by the way, the reason Apple's Apple is because he would disappear over the weekends hitchhiking up to the apple orchards north of Portland. Because in those days they didn't have apple picking machines. You had to do it all by hand. So he needed, but he didn't have any money. So he would come back on Monday and have enough money for the week for the coffee shop and stuff like that. <laughs> That's why Apple's Apple. But, um, you know, he was amazing. And he was very much uh, into synchronicity. I mean, he, he was very deeply spiritual. And there was a course there called Alchemy 101, which was a combination of, okay, quantum physics and the history of medieval science with all these kinds of graphs and charts and circles and stuff. 
and uh, and so, um, but yeah, sometimes you know because uh, for a period he did, he was living out in this sort of tent city um, on campus because that was the day when you could sort of drop out but still drop in, um, and it would rain in Oregon, and, and so he would um, come into Ackerman Dormitory, and I had him. He slept on my floor a number of times, and we had some conversations late into the nights but it was always um about spirituality and and uh, uh uh this idea of a of an infinite mind and and um he was he was uh, you know he was an interesting guy a lot of people didn't quite get along with him because he was he was a touch edgy you know but uh or let's just say his mind was more analogical and unpredictable than most minds. He was not a linear thinker, okay? And, uh, but but I like that because I'm very comfortable with that kind of a mind, so we, we were fine. But the thing that happened was in January, that, that, that year, first year, it doesn't snow in Oregon, but it rains like crazy. And it, like, like, you know, 80% of the days of the year, it rains in Oregon. And in in Jan, late January, it had gotten very cold that night, and I was sitting in the coffee shop about nine at night, and this guy comes bounding in, and he's got a black motorcycle on, jacket on, he's got wavy, curly hair, and his eyes are kind of lit up. And he says, my name's Andy, and I've got a brand new Harley Davidson shovel head. It's the fastest motorcycle on earth. Who wants to go for a ride? And like a fool, I said, I'll go for a ride. So you I, had that calling, huh? Yeah, you had I had the intuition. That yeah, that was, a, that was a dumb intuition, by the way. And so, so and there is such a thing. So I went out and I and I jumped on the back of this motorcycle, and this guy took off. He hit about 120 uh, in a minute. He went through every red light, every stop sign. Then he got to the Pacific Coast Highway 101, and he did this steep left, went down toward the California border, at 180. He hit 180. And we were sliding and slipping. 180 miles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really, and I was, I thought I was dead. I really thought I was dead. And I was crying. And I, and, and the rain was, was pelting us in the face. He was doing that in the rain. That's crazy. In the rain. Yeah, and he was screaming out into the night air, like, oh my God, I thought this was the end. And then he finally did this unbelievable sort of evil Knievel style U-turn over the midway. And he drove back to Portland same speed went through all the lights and stop signs and he dropped me off exactly where he picked me up and staggeringly i i walked across the bridge over the ravine and got into ackerman dormitory and now it's at this point it's 11 at night in california so it's two in the morning in new york where my mom is and i never answered the phone we had pay phones back then because no one had figured out cell phones like phone booth, like phone booths outside. Well, in the in the in the common room, there was a phone booth, you know, on the wall. Ah, yeah, yeah. And and, and so I so I never picked it up, but I'd given my mom the, the 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 number like months ago. So I I just I'm walking by it, and I would I had no interest in in answering the phone, even though I heard it ring, and then I just felt, strangely enough, just really push in the direction of the phone, and it struck me as odd so I picked up the phone and I said hello and it was my mom she said oh Stevie 
I was sleeping and I woke up and I was sweating and I was so frightened because I thought you were dead. And I said, Mom, I thought I was dead too. And I explained to her what had happened to me. And my mom was a little bit of an Irish mystic. And so she kind of believed in the, the, the subconscious mind, the connectivity of mind. And, and so we kind of talked about this. And what we remarked upon that night was that she was 3,000 miles away, um, you know, separated by big mountains like the Rockies, you know, <laughs> 3,000 miles away. And yet still, um, she had this premonition about my being in great danger. And a lot of mothers, more, much more so than fathers, but a lot of mothers do have these kinds of premonitions when their sons and daughters get in, 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 in rough spots. That's kind of spooky. So she, she was feeling this at 2 a.m., like miles away from where you were, and you nearly died on this crazy guy's motorbike at the same... And she called you, and you picked up the phone kind of as you walk back in. The phone was ringing. That's, that's spooky. Yeah, and so you could explain that, like we were saying, by some sort of probability theory, like, you know... Some, yeah, yeah. It's con some, something's going on that we don't fully understand, and there's some kind of connectedness... Um, between us all uh, and that's that's what it feels like anyways I mean who knows yeah and I mean in the book like when we left Cleveland I I loved Cleveland because I all my Cleveland was home for me for 20 years and that night it's in the book you know that night we we were leaving we were we'd sold the house we were in Glidden House a hotel in the University Circle area near Case Western and and I'm and I'm there with my friend Tom who I'm still good friends with and uh, it's about 11 at night, and we're behind Glidden House, sitting on a bench. And he's telling me what a, what a sad thing it is that I'm leaving Cleveland. Um, and then from between this restaurant called The Barking Spider and a coffee shop called um, uh, 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 Acadia, uh, this African-American guy came through the shadows. And... and and he had a, a blue jean vest on because it's summertime, you know, and he had a lot of bells kind of dangling here and there. And he walked right up to me and he said, I, I just had a feeling that I had to be here to give you this stick. And I, I'm showing this to you because you're looking at me visually, but I, he gave yeah. me this stick. So, so could you describe this stick just for everyone listening? Yeah, it's in, it, there's a picture of it in the book. So it's got a, it's, it's beautifully carved. It's kind of, you know, squirrely. It almost looks like a, you know, uh, a physician's uh, specter or something. I mean, it's got a beautiful carved face and a star up here on the forehead. It's got a leather string and a little bead and bell type thing. So you didn't know this guy and he just gave you a walking, it looks like a walking stick. He didn't quite give it to me because I, well, I said to him, well, if you give this to me, I got to give you something for it. Mm. How, about, how about 40 bucks? And he said, okay. And I didn't have 40 bucks because I didn't have my wallet on me. So my friend Tom gave me 40 bucks and I gave it to him. I paid Tom back. But he, the guy said to me that, you know, this stick, it's got more sense than you do. And if you follow it, it will take care of you. So it was very mystical, you know. So I yeah, came, that's I, cool. I, I, so, so it's a walking stick, but it's also, you know, in, in spiritual traditions and shamanism, you know, these kinds of sticks um, are something 
mysterious in a way. Well, they find you is what I've heard. I heard these kind of um, for shamans, the rocks and, and sticks and, and elements of earth in some way they find them and and then it just becomes this kind of uh, some kind of a totem or some kind of a uh, a thing that you that you carry around and it's that's nice yeah i mean i certainly wasn't looking for this stick you know i was just <laughs> i was just sitting there commiserating in the back of glidden house and this guy and this guy comes so he clearly found me and that's an act of you know one-mindedness of synchronicity of how we're more connected in this divine scheme of love than we realize but we have to be open to it and even in the difficult times i was doing a, i was actually doing a radio interview with a woman like two or three months ago from vancouver and she'd had a really hard time she'd gotten really depressed she'd gotten fired she was burned out because she was a nurse in a in a in an institution and she was just really beat up and uh she said i don't want you to talk to me about synchronicity or being cherished in these ways that we don't fully understand because it's not in my life. And, you know, there wasn't much I could say except that, you know, um, those are the very moments that if we, if we draw on them with a spiritual intentionality, we can grow and we can learn. And like you said, we can look back on that years hence. Like I look back years hence on my having gone from Cleveland to Stony Brook, you know, and um, I have to say that I evolved so much through the challenges. If I'd have stayed there, I'd have evolved too, maybe in different ways, but I don't think it would have been as powerful as what I experienced by overcoming certain things. Mm. Sometimes I feel like it's hard, though, when you're in the midst of it to make a decision that's going to be, um, well, you look at all the reasons you're making it, but it's going to be maybe you're going to grow in either direction. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the challenges are ahead and, and you'd rather not, you know what I mean? So it's 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 a tricky one. And I think it comes back to, again, just going with how you feel and, and being sure in your step and, and moving forward into the unknown and maybe maybe um you don't you know comfortable has its place and it's good to come back to comfortable now and then but i think stepping out is where the where the real growth happens um could you tell me a little bit about your book Stephen? i want to i wanted to just share because it, it it does have some incredible stories in there and um yeah i just i would like you to tell you know everyone out there kind of what it's about and so they can they can get a feel for it well, you know, it's it's a series of episodes of synchronicity. And it ends with, you know, filling the entire UN headquarters in August of 2016 with young people from all over the world. But um, it begins because I went to this, I guess you'd call it an Anglican uh high school in New Hampshire called St. Paul's. And um, I was, you know, a little more on the spiritual side than a lot of my colleagues there, uh, although some of them were pretty, pretty fascinating. And um, when I was 15, I had a recurring dream about six times over the course of roughly a year. <clears throat> and I would wake up in the early morning and I wasn't sure, quite sure if I was awake or asleep, and I 
would see this road to the west and a thick gray silvery mist covering it. And as I walked to the west, I heard a little scuffling. I saw a little scuffling to my left and I saw the contours of the face of a young guy uh, with very stringy blonde hair leaning out as if to jump. And and the dream was the same every every single time, was it? Yeah, it was recurring, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a big dreamer, I, and so that's what struck me about it. And also, at, the mist would dissipate, and then there was this face of a blue angel. I don't believe in angels, and and it said to me in a very warm, feminine voice, "If you save him, you too shall live." So I I would talk about that in. In sacred studies class, I would talk about it with my Jungian teacher Rod Wells. Yeah, because Jung Jung dives into dreams and and looks at the connectedness between you know the unconscious and the conscious mind and all of that as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't sure if it had any meaning at all. But uh, my sacred studies teacher Rod Wells was a Episcopal priest and a graduate of Yale Div, and so one time you know he drove me down to New, to New Haven, Connecticut, and and I I gave a I was the, I was in a course on adolescent spirituality with a bunch of people training for ministry, and they asked me all about this, and I said, you know, it was like Emerson's Oversoul. It just taught me that somehow my mind is more than just matter, and that there's something deep and mysterious, and that that this universal mind can try to break through my mundane mind with a dream, but I wasn't sure. And so they said, did you do anything as a result of this? I said, yeah, I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And they said, well, nobody from St. Paul's ever applies there. They go to Harvard and Yale and Columbia and stuff. And I said, yeah, but I just wanted to kind of follow the dream. And so it, it, to make a long story short, um, two summers later, I'm at home in New York. I got a job tutoring in the summer, which I really liked. But my parents thought it was too dangerous because it was in the Bronx. So my dad was the president of a of W and J Sloan's department store on Fifth Avenue. And he said, You can't you can't take this job. Your mother and I won't allow it. And if you do, we're just gonna you're you're on your own for college. So I said, All right, Dad, so what am I gonna do? And he said, I know what you can do. You can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. So he knew this guy named Bill. De Bono. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Oh my God! So I spent <laughs> I, I spent two weeks. I drove my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which was falling apart, to Bill De Bono's lampshade factory, and I worked on the assembly line cutting cardboard. And then after a couple of weeks, I've had it, and I I got a copy of Siddhartha in my pocket. I got my classical guitar. I got maybe fifty bucks, and I drive out that Friday. What else night. do you need? Yeah, what else do you need? I drive out that 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 Friday night to West Hampton Beach, and I got a couple of friends out there and a gal friend. And about eleven at night, I say, you know, I'm going to drive west. I'm going to follow the dream. And they thought I was nuts. So I got in that car, and. I just started driving west, and I, I I drove down the Sunrise Highway. I made my way through the Midtown Tunnel, and then I I you know I got across uh, the George Washington Bridge, and I'd never been across it before, and I saw two signs. One said 95 South, which goes down to Washington, and the other said Route 80 West, and the West was in my dream, so I went west, and like about 
Um, and remember, there's a pull and a push. The dream was the pull, but the push was that I had this really serious argument with my family and I was dead set on not getting out of Bill De Bono Slam Shade Factory. So, so it's like five in the morning I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania and I'm thinking to turn around. I'm, I'm going to say, you know, if I turn around, I do a U-turn, I can get back and no one will ever know about this escapade. And uh, I had enough money for gas. Uh, but then suddenly the generator on the Mercedes went out and all the lights, all the power, the thing, when generators went out, cars these days don't have generators, it was complete dead. And I got over on the right, I drifted over onto the right shoulder. And what was I going to do? There, it was just barely dusk. There was miles and miles of cornfields, nothing around at all. So I did what you'd expect. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and with a pencil, I wrote to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655 from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> I didn't actually use my name in the book, but anyway, but that's what happened. And I stuck my thumb out and this big truck came by. Anyway, I get out to California, spent the summer with my cousin, George Lamont, uh, spent a lot of time chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo with the Nichiren Shosho Buddhists. I played Villalobos and Tarega in Hispanic restaurants because that's what the mission district is. And it's a little dangerous. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and, and I got a very, very bad draft number for Vietnam. And I didn't believe in that war. So I called the people at Reed, even though I turned them down. And I said, you got to make a place for me because if I went to school, I couldn't get drafted. And they said, okay, come on. So early in the morning, about seven o'clock, I'm in front of the temple. I got cousin George, an old mentor named Gus, a bunch of people from the temple. And they give me a Gahon zone which is like a scroll and and I put it in my pocket in my in my backpack and I headed off on the Market Street bus and I got off at Golden Gate Park and I walked across the park and I walked onto the Golden Gate Bridge you were heading towards like home at that point or your cousin's house I'm heading from the Mission District north toward Oregon because I'm headed for Portland mm. oh, towards the Reed University mm. north and, and and it's 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 a very I could only see a few feet in front of me because it was very misty. There was a morning cloud, and I get to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I look. I hear a little noise to my left, and I look, and I I I think I see the contours of a face of a guy who's kind of leaning out, like he's ready to jump, and he's on the other side of this railing, which was about waist high, and. Um, I looked at him and I, he caught me out of the corner of his eye and I said, I truly hope you don't plan to jump. And then he got so pissed off, he started quoting Macbeth, okay? Like, you know, life is empty nothingness. And we used to do Macbeth back at St. Paul's. And, 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 and I said, you know, you, you say that really well. It's more realistic when you're out there on a ledge about to jump than it is in Memorial Hall back in New Hampshire. And we struck up a conversation and I kind of calmed him down. And then I said, you know, I think I'm, I, I, I hate to say, tell you this, but I may be out here for a reason. And he said, what, you know, and he was cursing at me. He said, what do you, what, what's this guy? I said, well, I had this dream. I'm paraphrasing. I had this dream 
when I was 15. And it recurred six times. And I saw what looked a lot like you in the dream, leaning out ready to jump. And I talked about the blue angel. And, and, and I said, I, you know, I, this kind of stuck with me and I, um, I, I followed it. I, you know, even took my dad's car and I, and it, and it, and it, and it broke at just the right time to keep me from turning back <laughs> synchronicity. And I went West and, and, and here I am. And we kind of connected very well. And, and, uh, and he, he really, he really grew, grew more serene. And then I said, look, I, I, um, uh, I got something for you that'll turn your life around. And he said, what's that? And he said, you, you know, and I said, well, it's called the Gahon Zone. And he, he was really, again, angry. And he said, what's, what, tell me about this. So I said, well, it's a Japanese scroll. And if I give it to you, it'll turn your life around. You'll have good luck, like, uh, luck the rest of your life. But I said, if, I'm, if I explain this to you, I pulled that out of my backpack, you have to come over on this side of the ledge. So believe it or not, he did. He actually walked over the, 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 the railing and he came to the to the walkway and he stood there with me and I explained this thing to him. And it's all about one mind and connectedness. And, you know, there's a sign for in Japanese for busy, which is a heart with a line through it. And Gus, who was a Japanese American from Hawaii, had taught me that that summer. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> And I said, look, I'll give this to you, but you have to promise me something. You have to walk down the bridge south. I'm going north, and I'm going to give you a note from my cousin George Lamont. And here's his address, 4 Chanery Street. You have to go go to George's, take the bus, ask George to get a shower, ask him if you can sleep on the same spot on the floor where I slept, and ask him to take you down to the Nichiren Shosho Temple to meet with with Gus and 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 see how it goes, and so uh, he did. I mean, again, I'm I'm not going through the whole story, but but he did he did it, and I waved goodbye and I went north and 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 was I was walking north on the bridge. I thought, you know, this is the strangest thing, but what a great message because here it is. It's two years from the time I started to have that recurring dream. And it's 3,000 miles away. And here I am, you know, beyond time, beyond space, in this moment, connecting with a guy who otherwise was going to jump off a bridge and kill himself. And, and, and I thought that's mostly what the saying meant. If you save him, you too shall live. If you, if you do this, you'll find a meaning. Talk about meaning, you know. Uh, and a calling in life. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I've spent all my career, even though I'm you know, trained in philosophy and world religions, in medical schools. And I work with a lot of people. I do a lot of clinical consultation uh, you know, with people who are pretty, pretty stretched out. And, and I've always kind of felt that was what I picked up from the dream. Mm. It's interesting how that theme has now run pretty solidly throughout your whole life and it's all kind of connected in some, some strange way. And yeah, it's, I've had, I've had moments where I've, I've like, remember, it's kind of like a deja vu, but it comes from the origin of a dream that I remember having, or I remember waking up and, and thinking about. 
and then that kind of plays out in reality, which is super strange. So it's a similar kind of thing, but never to the extent of saving someone's life. And that's quite a powerful thing that you've obviously gone through and that has really, I guess, made you feel more confident on your path and, and on this whole idea of following your own intuition and, and synchronicity. It's just kind of like a, it backs it up in a way, which is, which is beautiful. So have you ever seen this guy again? Have you stayed in touch with him? Well, his name was Harry and I came back from Reed to San Francisco at Thanksgiving and I didn't see Harry again, but George, uh, told me that he and this gal named Nancy uh, had gone uh, to North Carolina. And uh, I, I never heard from Harry or no one heard from Harry. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people in the book who people have heard from and, and so forth, but Harry, no. And so so that, that was that. But George, um, you know, always talked about Harry and, and he talked about Harry with his sons who still live in in Davis in California and his Irish wife. And so Harry's a part of the, of that legacy there. <laughs> That's awesome. And what did your dad say about the car? Okay. So that was a problem. Okay. So, okay. So here you, sorry. So when I, when I was, I went West on the truck, that, that truck driver gave me a ride to Chicago and got, let me off at Grant Park. It was kind of a hippie protest period. And I was, sitting on the bench playing guitar and earn, I earned a couple hundred bucks actually. Uh, and uh, there was a, a few days later, there was a band of hippies heading west in their in their microbus. And they asked me if I wanted to come. And I said, yeah, because I'm going west. I don't know where, but I'm going west. And we got to Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, and one of the girls said to me, you know, you should call your mom. <laughs> One of the hippie girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I said reluctantly, I guess so. So they pulled over to a, a, a stop area where they had a, a payphone, and I called collect. And uh, my mom said, oh, thank God you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons are detectives, okay? So, so I said to mom, I said, mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> so anyway, we talked. And uh, I didn't see my dad um, for about a year, and I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, I knocked on the door. I came into on, on the train uh, uh, into our hometown there, and I, I called home, and um, neither my mom or my dad were willing to come pick me up at the train station. <laughs> if you like, can make it all that way on your own, yeah, <laughs> yeah they, that's what they figured, you know. So I got a cab to drop me off at home and uh, and I knocked on the door and my mom answered the door. OK, and my dad was nowhere to be found. So this is not in the book. So so then I said, Mom, where's dad? And and she said, well, he's he's in the porch, but be careful. So I went back there and uh, I said, hey, dad, did you get the car back? He said, yeah, got the car. You know, they, they actually got the they, they, it was in a, in, a, in a repair shop and they fixed it and so forth. He got it towed back from the middle of Pennsylvania. And, uh, and, and, I, and then I said, uh, hey, you know, Giants are winning. We started talking about football. And, and it kind of took the edge off it. And I joked with him a little bit and he was still seething. But over the, he got better. He got better. Yeah, he got well, better. It's, it's, it's nice that it all worked out. And I think that's, a, that's another lesson that, you know, sometimes 
or things that our friends think or that our parents think, they're kind of in a way limited by their own worldview and their own perspective and their own lives. And, and sometimes our inner calling is something that should be, you know, we should always consider what other people are saying, but always realize that they're coming from their own. They want the best for us and they're coming from their own vantage point. But, but to be true to ourselves is, is kind of like uh, the most important thing, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is. And if you, if now, you know, so the Muslim, you know, the Islamic scholars, like way back in the 12th century, they were all writing their, they didn't write theological books. They wrote books about the interpretation of dreams, like big, huge classic books about dreams, because they really believed in, in this power of connectedness and this kind of mysticism. And, um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, they would say that there are some dreams that are worth putting on the shelf and some that you're not sure of and some that you should definitely follow. And they talked about how you could discern this and be prayerful about it. And for some reason or another, um, everything just came together. So when I was at the University of Chicago in Swift Hall, which was is the divinity school there, I'm in the basement with Joseph Campbell and Mersha Eliade again. And I'm telling them about the Mercedes 190 and how it just stopped at exactly the moment it had to stop because if it, it because I was going to turn around. My my personal goal wasn't my destiny, but my personal goal was to turn around over that midway and go back over the George Washington Bridge and drive. It was, a, it was an element of fear, right? Yeah, well, just like, yeah, what about my sterling reputation and all of that stuff? <laughs> but the, but the, car, the car broke down so completely and so quickly and utterly that I, you know, I, I thought at the time, that's actually a sign um, that I have to continue on this journey. And, and um, so um, Campbell said, synchronicity synchronicity not luck okay that was what he said <clears throat> and then Eliade who was very different like you know he had he was very French and his language was hard to follow and he had a lot of tough so he you know he looked like E.T. Eliade looked like E.T. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. and um, he was stirring this cup of coffee like a shaman with you know with this staring into it and he said is it all synchronicity which is a very good question, and I address that in the book, you know. But the book is all about these episodes of synchronicity, and they, it ends up with the UN because I'd gotten my web, my website for the institute had been hacked by uh, ISIS Team DZ, which was the, the in that was in the summer of 2014, and and I started um, an essay contest for young people around the world to write these nice reflections about how they pushed back against peer pressure to hate other individuals just because they didn't believe what they believed. We had a competition, we had cash prizes, and the UN found out about this for various reasons. And so we were invited to be the sponsors of the 20, um, the 2016 UN Youth Day, August 14, 2016. And, 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 and to have all these young people performing their essays, you know, rap style, poetically, dramatically, it was so cool. But that whole thing was, again, it was like the expanding canvas. You had to take a, 
a negative moment because they took our whole website down and had to reconstruct it. And I even talked with an FBI person about it at one point. Um, I wasn't worried, but my wife was worried. And so um, it all turned out to be something really beautiful. It all comes back to, again, yeah, like following your own calling and pushing through and, and moving beyond, you know, expectations of others, you know, just this, just these kind of social constructs and, and what other people think and, and feel and, and going with your, with yourself. I, I just want to, I'm really curious about something. I'm just going to ask you real quick. You mentioned uh, with these Muslim teachings, um, discerning the dreams from one another and and how to like kind of find which path to take among, you know, maybe a couple of different dreams that you may have. Do you have any more insight on um, the, some findings uh, during your research on this? Well, you know, I, I'm not really a dream researcher. There, there are a lot of people who are, who really, you know, psychologists who really categorize dreams and they have these typologies and so forth. But what about I mean, when we're talking about dreams as in maybe more of an, from an ambition point of view? Well, so I think the thing about the dream I had that, that made me wonder about it so much, um, you know, it was just a dream about my own little ambitions. Um, that would have been one thing, and that would have been kind of a maybe a normal dream or maybe just an, you know, everyday relationships. But... This dream was so alien and so strange and so foreign. Kind of stood out my, a little bit. Mm. It's a, a lot, and then, and then it, the fact that it recurred identically six times. So it's, it's fascinating. So I actually did a talk on God and Love on Route eighty at All Souls Unitarian Church on Fifth Avenue about a month ago, and one of my schoolmates from high school, Charles Scribner, whose dad owned Scribner's books actually showed up he came and we and people remember the days of the dream they remember me talking about the dream in in classes and and talking about it with reverend wells and trying to think it through and wondering if it meant anything and i didn't know and then just somehow this i, I but I, and i didn't really follow it i mean that's the interesting thing about you know did i really discern something i mean i i, I probably would not have followed it just on its own but it was the fact that I had this really pretty acrimonious, it was worse than that, really bad argument with my parents when they wouldn't let me tutor in the Bronx that summer. And 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 after two weeks at Bill de Bono's lampshade factory, cutting cardboard between two huge Italian women, and there was no air conditioning, and Bill was looking us over with his cigar, and I, it, I, and I was like, you know, this was not going to work. So I was really... I feel like you, you, you may have followed it, though, because you were talking about it, you were thinking about it, you were discussing it with other people. So I think in a way, although you were not directly following or chasing it, you were open to doing that, you know? Yeah, I was, I was open to it, and I, I needed a little shove. <laughs> you need that little push sometimes. That's something that's really interesting in my life at the moment. I feel like, in a way, we can get stuck in these kind of thoughts or these dreams, but without necessarily taking the necessary action to move towards something that's at the at the end of the day going to be meaningful for the world or for everyone or whatever we find meaning in but sometimes we need that little bit of a push that whatever that might be that catalyst 
before we can get on our way. Um, but we're really already on the way. It's just sometimes hard to see in that moment. Like you having these discussions with all these people and analyzing it and, and being on that part of your journey before you had that argument with your parents was still part of the journey. You just yeah, didn't it see was it, part right? of the journey. You're right. And also the car breaking down when it did had to be a part of the journey. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. The car just breaks down and you're just stuck there with a pen and paper. If it hadn't broken down, there would have been no journey. So that was part of it. I hope you guys got something out of this conversation. Uh, If you want to find out a bit more about Stephen, visit stephengpost.com where you can access his books, uh, newsletters, and, and his blog. You can also contact him from the website. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, again, I really would love to hear from you guys, whether it's feedback, whether it's just to say hi, um, just just reach out and, and connect with me because um, I'm really here to provide you with as much value as possible and any kind of insight into what that may what that may look like, what you're enjoying, what you what you feel uh, you could you know probably use more of from the show or any ideas on changing things up. Let me know about them. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. The website is todaydreamer.com. You can also say hey at today.dreamer on Instagram. I'll catch you in the next episode. I've got some really cool stuff on the way for you guys. I'm going to be trying to introduce some creative elements into the show, make things a little bit more entertaining as well as informative. And uh, let's see how this thing goes.